Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and this is actually going to be the last session in our study in the book of Romans. We have been working through this book since October, and we are now coming to the last chapter, chapter 16. And I'm excited. There's a lot of good stuff in this chapter. And then next, um, next Sunday, we'll be walking through Psalm 51. And then the Sunday after that, we're going to start going verse by verse through the book of Ecclesiastes, which I'm very excited to be digging into that hard book with you guys. So keep, um, watch out for those coming down the pipeline in the coming weeks. But without further ado, let us dive into um, Romans chapter 16. And so we, we come to the conclusion of Romans here. And what we're going to read is comparable to Paul running down the church fund directory in a lot of ways. He is addressing greetings to numerous individuals by name. And he begins with Phoebe, who has been the subject of much debate over the centuries. And so let us dive into this passage and see what Paul sees through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So reading the first two verses, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. The Greek word for servant here is, is important. This is diakonos, which is a generic word, the translation of which has been long contested. Some translations describe Phoebe as a deacon of the church. Others say deaconess, others say servant. And so these are all kind of interchangeable, but um, there is some debate in modern um, beers as to who was Phoebe. And so this word diakonos muddies the water a little bit as we try to grapple what this word means in this text, because it's not a word that's used very often. But we have to interpret it both in light of other usages of the word diakonos and the context of this usage here. And so with that, um, let's refer to 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul is laying out the qualifications for a deacon. And I think this is important, giving the, the backdrop um, for some of the linguistics here. And so picking up in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, 
respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so the that's, that's overseer, that's elder. Moving on, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Let, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And then he moves on to their wives, and he says their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So deacon here, we're talking about, um, he's talking about a particular office. And a little bit of backdrop in Acts chapter 5, they instituted the office of deacon to serve. To serve in ways that would free up the apostles and the teachers to teach and to devote more time to prayer and those aspects. But the deacons were to serve from within. And so there's an office of deacon, but the word deacon literally means servant. And sometimes it's used that way. Sometimes it's used in a more generic sense, as it is in Romans 15, verse 8, when it says, For I tell you that Christ became a diakonos, a servant or deacon, to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Romans 13 says likewise, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. When you have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's diakonos, his servant, or deacon, for your good. And so this word diakonos is generic, and some it's the, the interpretation of it um, banks a lot on the context. So the word is not inherently applied to the, quote, office of deacon, as we understand the phrase. And the context guides us here with Phoebe. Aside from the word itself, this statement of Phoebe is not necessarily stating her to be a deacon in the same sense as, say, Timothy. Contextually, I do not think it out of place to say that her faithful service, as Paul writes, that her faithful service and devotion to the church of Centuria was comparable to what is to be expected from a deacon that holds office in the same way that when Paul writes in 1 Timothy and he goes straight into how their wives should be and you can pretty much set those side by side because I believe that the wife of the deacon has a certain responsibility as well not in a leading capacity but in a serving capacity so when Paul says that she is a deacon she is a faithful servant of her church like what we would expect from someone who holds the office of deacon, just not in a leadership function.
But this does not in any way diminish what Paul is saying of Phoebe. Some scholars believe that Paul sent Phoebe to deliver this epistle to the Romans. That his commendation of her was to deliver this epistle. A task of great significance and that she likely would have served the church during her time there. Um, that they would benefit from her as she would from them. Which is a, an idea that Paul uses often. We saw this in Romans chapter 1. That I might impart some spiritual gift both for your benefit and mine. And so he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And so we can affirm, as the body of this text does, that the church profits from both men and women. They may be in different ways and different functions, but the church is comprised of men and women. And Paul was no stranger to this. We have laid out in the rest of this list here, men and women. Going to verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Tryphenea and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved, the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the, in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Ph Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his mother, I mean, and his sister, sorry, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And I may have mispronounced a few of those, um, you'll have to forgive me there, but um, if you notice here, many of the Christians that Paul lists here are named after pagan gods. They have been redeemed, but this church is composed of lost people who have been grafted into the family of God. We're talking about a list that is diverse, that is full of people ruined by sin who have been reconciled to the Father. That we are seeing a, a mosaic of redemption laid out before us. As it says in Romans 9, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on the works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Christ has, and is, building for himself a people. A people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and background. He makes us one family, despite our differences, despite our pasts, despite where specifically we come from. Galatians 3 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. For as many as you, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And some people look at that text and they argue that gender is a social construct, that it doesn't play into the church now. There's no um, hierarchy, there's no, gender's not a thing now. It's not exactly what I think the text is saying. I think that it's, we have differences, we have very obvious differences. But what's being laid out here is we have the same needs. We have the same creator. And we have those same needs. And they're met by the same one. That where it counts, we are one. And the, the Christian worldview is the only worldview that gives due diligence both to the one and the many, who we are as an individual and who we are as part of a collective. And lots of religions try to deal with one or the other, but the Christian worldview is the only one that gives proper time to both aspects in its definition of what it means to be a person. So as in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. So, so we are one family. We are not alone in this thing called the Christian life. As Charles Spurgeon once wrote, The unity of evil we are to break down by every weapon our hands can grasp. The unity of the spirit we are to maintain. And foster is another thing. This, this unity that's being painted for us is different. There's nothing quite like the church in its construction, in its composition, the church is entirely unique. That there is a different kind of unity in the church that you won't find in the world. We, we hear a lot of talk, a lot of rhetoric about unity and coming together, but the church is the only thing that really can. That the kind of unity the world creates is a corruptible shadow. It's that hideous strength that built the Tower of Babel, as a author of long time ago wrote. It's, it's a false unity. It's, it's a counterfeit unity. But the unity that is in the Christ, unity in church, that we have union with Christ, and that unites us not only to God, but to other people who are within that household of faith. This kind of unity is unparalleled. There's not a version of this in the world. As Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So while we can argue ad nauseum over the subject of Phoebe, and when we do, we have a tendency to miss the point. By overthinking the meaning of the word servant, we miss the big picture, I think, of this text. The mosaic of ransomed saints that have been reconciled to God. This beautiful picture that God is drawing of his people. So, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their neck for my life. We have laid out here a pretty diverse collection of people. That These are some, some odd names. Narcissus and Hermes and Andronicus, that these are names that are rooted in Greek mythology. These are not necessarily names that a Christian household would have picked. And in a society where your name and everything, when your name was your identity, that is significant. That they have been redeemed from this, that they are part of the saints, that Narcissus is part of the body of Christ. Because, as it says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And so we have this mosaic of people who are crucified with Christ, who may look different, talk different, sound different, be different, but we have that thing in common that we are all in Christ. And this unity is different. We operate differently now. That Narcissus is not still living up to his name. And I think J.R.R. Tolkien paints a beautiful picture of this in some of his poetry. I've been meditating on some of his poetry, um, marinating on it this week, and I found this particular one to be quite on point in uh, Lord of the Rings. And so Tolkien writes, Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow. Bright blue his jacket is, and his boots are yellow. None has ever caught him yet, for Tom he is the master. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. The church is no ordinary group of people. That there is a different way that we operate. That we are not ensnared as people of the world are ensnared. That our songs are different songs. They are stronger songs. Our feet are faster than other people's feet. And that sounds weird, but... At our core, we are different. The church is no ordinary group of people. As Kuiper once said, it is both institution and organism. It is, it has no parallel. It is one of the few societal spheres instituted by God. But it is the only one purchased by the blood of Christ. Nowhere in scripture do we have anything about the propitiation of Christ's blood building the government or building the family. But we do have Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is different. The blood of Christ is for the church. We were purchased by God and made a people. We who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, as it says in Ephesians. And this is the mosaic. These, these strange people that otherwise may never have been together have been brought together by the person and work of Christ. Moving on through the text, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greet you. The church is in submission to Christ, our king. And the strongholds of the enemy shall be brought low by the same king. There truly is nothing like the church. There may be cheap imitations, but the church is a spiritual work. As it says that Satan shall be crushed under your feet, meaning the church. The church is in direct opposition to the wiles of the devil. The carnal mind can't conceive such a thing as the church. It stands wholly opposed to everything in the carnal mind. In this worldview of death that we find ourselves in, the church is a beacon of hope and light. Not because we are the light, but we are guiding people to the light. It is the vessel by which God has ordained to fill the world with image bearers. He, he has placed his precious gospel in clay pots. The significance is not in the messengers, but in the message. And Christ is sending that gospel forth. He is conforming people to the image of Christ through the work of the church. It's, it's a beautiful dance that I don't do this, but Christ does it through me. Yet not I, but Christ in me, as the song says. I think Abraham Kuyper put it well, and he put it this way. Eden is planted, but humankind will cultivate it. That is the fundamental law of creation, which is to say, creation was fashioned by God, fashioned with life that surges and scintillates in its bosom, fashioned with the powers that lie dormant in its womb. Yet lying, lying here, it displayed but half its beauty. Now, however, God crowns it with humanity, who awakens its life, arouses its power, and with human hands brings to light the glory that once lay locked in its depths but had not yet shown on its countenance. Now, hum the church is bringing into, into fruition 
the plans of God, that we are vessels in the hand of God. That he is using the church to draw people to himself. And it's really beautiful to, to step back and look at what God is doing. When there are more Christians in the world today than there were people on the planet 500 years ago. That is truly mind-blowing. The gospel's going forth, make no mistake. Verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. While this verse is, seems a little weird in the 21st century, um, it does. there is a point to it. And while this verse does not appear to be prescriptive, that is, prescribing to us a specific thing we have to do, there is a principle to this verse, I believe, that we can extrapolate. The love we have to have for the body is a strong one. We love each other in a way that we only can do, as his ransomed people crucified with Christ. Consider the words of Christ in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you. Why? So that you will love one another. Paul says, Paul builds off of this in Romans 12, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And between these two passages, we see the usage of the Greek word agape instead of phileo for brotherly love or eros for romantic love or philousia for the love itself. And like we saw last week in Romans 15, agape is a Greek word for divine love. This is a word that is reserved to describe the love of God. But the church is marked by divine love. For God has loved us in that while we were alienated from him in our sins, he gave himself freely for us that we might be joined to him in a holy union and one of the products of this holy union is that we may love as he loves. When he asked Peter, Simon, do you love me? He's not saying phileo each time. He starts there. First he says, do you phileo me? Yeah, I phileo you. But then he says, do you agape me? Do you love me as I love you? That is a, that is a potent question. Do I love God as he loves me? Do I love my kinsmen in the church as God loves me and God loves them? George MacDonald sums it up this way, tying it back to the cross in very poetic fashion. And he writes, Christ died to save us, not from suffering, but from ourselves. Not from injustice, far less from justice, but from being unjust. 
He died that we might live, but live as he lives, by dying as he died, who died to himself. And so there is, there is a deep love here that is different than what the world can produce. And we bring this into the text. This is how we love the brethren. Chap Back to verse 17. I, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. For each person's do not these for, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. We have a similar wording here, similar content to um, that ever-famous passage from Galatians. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I now say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For I do now persuade men, or God. Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So Paul has spent the last several chapters laying, discussing these scenarios where division is harmful to the church. He's talked about the weaker brother. He's talked about bearing one another's burdens and this unity that we should have. But here, he makes it clear that cases of false doctrine do not fall in such scenarios. We must be pure in the gospel. The church shall live and die by the truth, truth of the gospel. We cannot compromise on that. Thus Paul exhorts the Romans to be vigilant in the truth, to discern what is true, to be innocent in what is good, to be And so Paul exhorts them to be vigilant in what is true, to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. For the God of peace shall soon crush Satan under your feet. And so we are exhorted to truth, to discern what is true and what is but lies. As Luther once said, peace if possible, but truth at all costs. That is the line the scripture draws. Um, as it says in Romans 13, live peaceably with all as far as it depends on you. But the church lives and dies by the truth. That's the line that it draws is the whole truth, not CRT, not feminism, not liberation theology, but truth as a whole. And scripture is sufficient to address the issue of what is true. For God is truth. He is the precondition for truth. So scripture does not need to tell us that CRT is a problem because we have the truth. Anything that doesn't line up with this book is not true. And so we weigh everything against the scriptures. It all hangs on the Bible. And so we address things in light of the truth of scripture. It all comes back to what God has said, what God has revealed to us, because it all starts with God. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The personal work of Christ, specifically who Christ is, what he did, and how wretched, ugly sinners like us received the benefits thereof. That, who he is and what he did, the personal work of Christ undergirds the way we understand this thing called the church. Omnium Christus, omnium vitae, all of Christ for all of life. So Paul exhorts us to truth, knowing that Satan and all that is aligned with him will be brought low as Christ is magnified. And he continues, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I, Timothy, I mean, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greet you. Wrapping up this letter, Paul lists the greetings from his friends. He sends the regards of some of his co-laborers. Paul was no lone wolf by any extent of the word. Paul understood that he could not do this alone, and he surrounded himself with likewise believers, with like-minded believers, both for his benefit and theirs. And he urges the same sentiment, you recall, when he introduces Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. And he opens Romans, Romans chapter 1, with a similar statement. For I long to see you, verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that it is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So now we come back to Romans 16, and he is tying things together. He's tying the beginning and the end together in a cohesive picture here. And so he hangs it all on the glory of Christ and something that we labor for together. That this mission that we are on as the church is not Paul or Apollos or Peter it's the church as a whole. And so he closes with doxology, which is he closes with a blessing praising God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, be glory forever, through Jesus Christ. Amen. In the closing doxology of Paul, he states that we are strengthened according to the gospel. And the Greek 
here for strengthen literally means to establish, to make stable. And according to, um, the Greek word that we translate as according to is kata. And the word kata implies a top-down bestowing. That it, we often render it as according to, but it can also mean from above. And this is something that we see laid out in Romans 1, as well as some of the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Psalm 119 uses the same word. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And in the Greek translation of that verse that Paul likely would have studied and been very familiar with, it would have, say, it would have said kata. And I think that part of what the Holy Spirit is illustrating here is that we're not talking about Paul's understanding of it. That we're talking about the the gospel, the, the revelation of God himself. Not It doesn't say, may you be strengthened by Calvinism or Presbyterianism, but be strengthened by the gospel that is from above. That Paul is not referring to his attempted understanding of the gospel, but the pure word of God. This is what strengthens us. This is what nourishes our soul. Because the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. And he maketh me lie down by the, by the still waters. He leadeth me by still waters. He maketh me to lie down in the green pastures. He restoreth my soul. This is the God of Scripture. And this phrase, the obedience of faith, is also important because that's also from Romans 1. So Paul is tying this knot at both ends. And the statement of mystery is similar to Ephesians. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable reaches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. God has made himself known to the nations. His gospel goes forth. Regardless of nationality, regardless of background, God is building his temple. And we are the temple. This is the glorious mystery of God, the God who saves the Jews and the Gentiles, the God who tears down divisions and makes us one body that can love as he loves. And I can think of no better picture of that glorious restoration than Revelation 22. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In that closing phrase of Romans 16, To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. To finish out the letter, Paul hangs it all on the glory of Christ. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. As we conclude our study in the book of Romans, may we also hang everything on the glory of Christ, which is revealed through this work of him making us new, by giving us new life, free from sin which is the core of the book of Romans, that we are being made new, and that the righteous shall live by faith. And he closes this last sentence with, Amen. In Greek, Amen literally means, this is true, or may it be so. And so let, of all, let all of God's elect thus say, Amen. This is true. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media. If you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That's something that I've written. That's something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.